Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Alexandra Plakius. She is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Hamilton College, and today we're talking about her book, Thinking Through Food, a Philosophical Introduction. So Dr. Plakius, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, so I told you this off record, but I, I have to start this interview by saying that basically, since I read your book, all my meals got ruined. <laughs> because before I read your book, I was only worried about like ethical issues and stuff like that. Things related to, for example, animal rights and perhaps other stuff we're going to talk here about today we're going to talk about here today so uh, but then it, it, it's also metaphysics and epistemology and aesthetics and i mean come on it's just so you're really selling my book now buy this book and ruin your food <laughs> Maybe i could sell it as like a weight loss book like you will not want to eat anymore after reading this book but um yeah. that was definitely not the goal of the book <laughs> but i hope by the end of the interview we can uh we can save food for you <laughs> Yeah, let, let's hope, let's hope. So starting with the metaphysics then, I guess. So what is food? Because uh, before I read the book, I thought that it was pretty much straightforward what food really was, but now I'm a bit confused. So <laughs> what is food? <laughs> it's very confusing. So, and just to say, you know, to go back to your previous comment, I mean, I take it that part of what you're saying is, look, after reading the book, you realize that food is, uh, that so many different philosophical issues come up in the context of food. So we can't really eat without raising, or when we eat, it involves metaphysical questions and epistemological questions and aesthetic questions, right? So all of these issues get tied up in food. And I think when most people think about philosophy of food, we think about the ethical questions, like what should we eat? What are the environmental impacts of our food choices? How do they affect animals? How do they affect uh, you know, labor issues and things like that? But even eating is a kind of metaphysical choice, is a kind of epistemological choice, so that you know, there's much more to it than just ethics. And as you, as you um, point out with your question, one of the questions that is involved in food is metaphysical. What is food, right? And here, I think it's helpful to distinguish conceptually things that are edible from things that are food. So we know that the category of the edible outstrips the category of food. And it's interesting to think, are there things we would consider food that aren't really even edible, right? So we, you know, things like chewing gum, right, are things that we uh, put in our mouths that um, we consume in some sense, but aren't really food per se. In fact, um, you know, the category of food is surprisingly hard to define. It's pretty hard to come up with a a good definition of food. And if you look at some of the governmental attempts to define it, um, one of the definitions we get is just things people eat or things people treat as food. So food is really a category that we construct um, just in the act of eating, right? So um, when we decide to put something on the table at dinner time, we make it food, right? Again, you know, it is somewhat constrained by what we can digest, what won't kill us in the short term, right? 
Um, so there are constraints on what we can consider food, but there are plenty of things that we could eat and don't consider food. It's a category, as I said, that we make and that recognizing that can help us also recognize that food is a category we can remake and really are remaking constantly. Um, having said that, food is also a category that is to some extent made for us and presented to us through culture and through marketing um, and through political choices about what we should and shouldn't consider food. So it gets very tied up in questions about cultural identity, religious identity, um, the ideology of health and wellness, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned culture there, this gets us into a very interesting question that is, so of course we look across different cultures and in different places people consider different things food and not food. So if something is culturally normative, can we say that it is real or not? I mean, so... The question of what's real or not real, are, one way of hearing your question is like, is the category of food real? Is that sort of what you're asking? Like, is there, are there real facts about food? Um, you know, I mean- And, and, and I mean, of course, this is just one take on what uh, we consider food. I mean, if we consider it to just be something that we sort of decide culturally that is food. I mean, that would be one take on what food is, right? But with that take in mind, I was trying to understand, since we're talking about metaphysics here, if something, uh, because it is considered just culturally normative, if it could also be considered real or not, or part of reality. Right. So. I mean, this is an interesting question. Before working on food, I came to philosophy of food relatively late, and um, I also work in metaethics. So part of my, my other work is in questions about moral objectivity and moral relativism. And so maybe, you know, there's some overlap here. And I, the way I tend to think about objectivity and questions about what's real is, is kind of in terms of like, well, why does that matter to us, right? What do we... When we, because it does seem like something people care a lot about, are matters of taste subjective? Are these categories objective? And so one question is, well, why do we care about that? What does the notion of objectivity do for us? And I think in both the moral case and the food case, there are some commonalities. And I think one thing we care about is, can we expect other people to make the same judgments that we make, right? Both food and morality are essentially social activities, right? To, you know, um, our practices of producing and consuming and preparing food are highly social. And so we do care that other people share the same categories and share the same judgments as us. Um, how much similarity can we expect and how far can we expect that similarity to extend? You know, in the, in the case of moral judgments, many people want it to extend across all possible worlds, right? So not even just across this world, but all possible worlds. In the case of food, I think we find... Um, we wouldn't expect our judgments to extend across possible worlds, maybe not even this world, certainly looking back historically. Um, we see actually a fair amount of historical continuity. The New York Times just published a recipe for hummus from, that's I think about 800 years old, and it looks pretty similar to a recipe for hummus you would find today. Um, you know, when you look back at the cooking of ancient Greece and Rome, you find a lot of uh, similarities. 
cross-culturally now we do find a lot of variation and even within cultures uh we find a lot of variation when it comes to food so in one sense it's not objective in that we can't expect everyone to share the same judgments interestingly in the case of food as compared to morality i think we do have in many cases a good understanding of the physiological differences that underlie differences in taste so for example some people really hate the taste of cilantro apparently cilantro haters are a really uh, uh vociferous group online <laughs> and there is some genetic basis for when people say cilantro tastes like soap to them they're not just you know saying that that's true there's a genetic explanation for why that is um you know and it's it's not surprising when we think of how big the food industry is that we can make predictions about how things will taste to people, that we can expect there to be um, some similarities in taste judgments, right? So I realized that we started talking about metaphysics and now we're sliding into aesthetics and judgments of taste. And that's just how, you know, that's what happens sometimes. Going back to the metaphysical question, you know, in the case of like, well, what do people consider food? As in the moral question, I don't think Per, my own view is that there are not, you know, mind independent, human independent facts in the world about what is and isn't food. Questions about what is food are constrained by our physiologies or constrained by the kinds of things that we can eat and constrained by the kinds of things that have that are available to us as well. Right. Um, now, having said that, there are things we can do to change our environment. Right. Just as I think in the moral case, there are things we can do to change uh, the psychological facts about us that constrain or underwrite what's morally right and wrong. So I realize, again, this is not an interview about metaethics, but I think there is some similarity there. And I think in both cases, when we ask, is, is this fact or is this area of discourse objective? You know, what we really want to know is how, how, what can our predictions about uh, the world be like? How much, what are we entitled to expect about the world? What kinds of claims are we entitled to make about on or about other people and their judgments? Um, and so really objectivity is a way that, you know, we form and shape our expectations about things we haven't encountered yet, things we will encounter. Mm -hmm. And what about food properties like taste, for example? Uh, I mean, would the take here be more or less the same? I, I mean, of course, I don't imagine that we could say that it would make sense to talk about taste as something that would be independent of human minds or the minds of other animals, because this is something that we experience mentally. But could we say that food properties have some sort of objective reality to them or, or are objective in any particular way? Right. So, I mean, we can look at certain flavors in food right mm -hmm. as objectives certainly and so we can you know we know that we can reverse engineer certain forms of flavoring and fragrance right and this is a very big business it's a very secretive business it's a fascinating business right mm -hmm. so things like what you know how to recreate the flavor of vanilla right yeah. things like how crunchy a dorito is right so if you go into you know the food science labs and they have these artificial jaws that can test the crunch factor of a chip I mean, these are properties that are in some sense objective. We can quantify and measure them. We can expect them to be reproducible. We do expect them to be reproducible. And again, you know, billions of dollars depend on these properties being very reliable and very quantifiable. Um, 
Now, the difference between flavor and taste might be said to be one in part of how we react to those flavors and liking, right? And so there, I think we see more subjectivity creeping in. Um, and it's tempting to think of subjectivity as just individual difference. Like I like, you know, um, this food, you like Marmite, I hate Marmite, right? We might both even experience the same flavors in Marmite and the same smells when we open a jar, but we might have different reactions to it. But, you know, our reactions are also not as individualized as we might think, um, and not as, uh, we might not have as much autonomy as we think about liking, right? Because it might be partly a matter of marketing, partly a matter of environment, and so on and so forth, context, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so uh, let's move on to uh, epistemology, perhaps. Let me just say that I really don't want to get into the pineapple on pizza debate here. <laughs> because I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that can be solved. Let me just put it out there that I once, I once saw an Italian woman eating uh, a pizza with pineapple on it. So... That's the only okay. thing I have to say about it. If if an Italian person thinks it's good, let's leave it at that. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty heavyweight entry into the debate. That's a pretty strong piece of evidence. <laughs> so uh, epistemology, then. So how do we acquire knowledge about food, and perhaps what can these tell us about? how we acquire knowledge in general? So I think this is a really interesting question. And this is um, probably the thing I'm most interested in right now is the different ways that food can, uh, can give us knowledge, the ways we acquire knowledge about food. I mean, I think that we can start from the question, how do we acquire knowledge about anything? And one route is through experience, right? Um, so we, when we think about how we get knowledge about a food, you know, an item of food, part of it is through just tasting it. But of course, when we put a piece of food into our mouths, we have a lot of expectations about that food prior to even tasting it. And so, you know, I once did a exercise with my class during a, a session on taste where I actually brought in a jar of Marmite and they didn't know what it was. And I kind of dipped little wooden tasting spoons into it and passed them around. And some students looked at the color and texture and thought they were about to get some kind of chocolate product. Um, if you've ever had Marmite, you can imagine how shocked they were uh, when they realized it was not chocolate, right? But so just by the appearance of a food and things like that, we're already forming expectations. And um, if that food contravenes those expectations, that dissonance can itself be uh, unpleasant. In the right context, it might be a pleasant surprise. Um, so I think that we have a lot of ideas too about food. And I think that um, those kinds of conceptual schemes and judgments that we bring to the table form part of uh, our understanding of what we then encounter. So experience is one route. There is a debate in um, the aesthetics literature about whether we can form knowledge of food through testimony or whether we have to encounter a food. So can I just tell you, you know, if a listener uh, has never had Marmite and I kind of try to describe it as a kind of savory, kind of funky, maybe smells a little bit like dirty diapers. Um, I'm not really a fan. Uh, you know, can they then get knowledge of what Marmite tastes like without tasting it? And, you know, there's 
different views on this. Um, I think Aaron Meskin and John Robeson have defended the view that yes, the philosopher Sarah Worth in her recent book says no, to really have knowledge of food, you have to taste it. And I think part of Worth's argument is like the very act of tasting or the skill of tasting is part of what it is to have knowledge of food, to be able to encounter something and kind of disambiguate the various flavors and smells and textures and things like that. Um, now, a different question might be, well, how do we know what's good to eat or what kind of things count as food? And there, I think we do rely on other people. We rely on cultural context and things like that. Um, so I think that, um, I'm not sure, does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and perhaps uh, to ask a further question, to what extent can we rely on our senses? And perhaps this might get us into mm. the... Yeah. Uh, the traditional debate between the empiricists and the rationalists. So what is your, what are your ideas on it? Yeah, I think that's a great question, especially in the case of food. So it's, I mean, it's interesting to me that philosophers have spent, you know, millennia constructing scenarios in which the external world deceives us and have come up with these increasingly elaborate scenarios involving, you know, not just dreaming, but brains and vats and uh, zebras and or horses painted like zebras and fake barns when in fact walking into your everyday grocery store you inhabit this scenario to some extent because there's as I said a billion dollar industry devoted to making things appear uh, to be things that they are not right using flavoring using color right so uh, I think that to some extent, we cannot rely on our senses. And I want to be clear here that I'm not making the argument that processed food or artificially flavored food is all bad, right? Because it's done many wonderful things. And there's a great essay by the, the writer Rachel Loudon called In Defense of Culinary Modernism, where she points out that this desire to go back to some kind of pre-modern food system is very misguided. Our food used to be putrid. It used to kill us. It required incredible uh, amounts of time to process, right? So let me be clear that uh, processed food has done many wonderful things for us and has saved many lives and um, and has been a boon uh, to humanity in many ways. From an epistemological point of view, it does present interesting puzzles and challenges, right? Because the things we would normally use to tell us what we're eating, our senses, vision, right? Smell, taste, all of a sudden are no longer a reliable guide to what's inside. Um, so the of artificial colors to, uh, to, to the use of artificial coloring in food, right, all of a sudden means that um, the color of, say, a piece of tuna is no longer reflective of what's actually, you know, that actual piece of fish. Now, this, both, this means both that we may form false beliefs about this particular thing that we're eating, right? I might think, oh, look at this really pink piece of tuna or salmon, not realizing that artificial um, or, you know, some kind of color has been added. Um, but it also leads to us forming false expectations about what other foods should look like, right? So when I see um, an apple that's not a bright, shiny red apple, right, not realizing that that apple may have had wax added to it, or, um, you know, I, I form beliefs about what future apples should look like. Um, and so that in turn can lead to a kind of systematically false belief about what food looks like, what foods are good to eat, how I form my beliefs about when foods are ripe or ready or things like that. Um, 
yeah. And by the way, talking about processed food, uh, I mean, perhaps nowadays we, when we talk about it, we should add industrially processed food to it because right. I mean, processed food, what food is right. really not processed before we eat it? Even, even if we just cook it with fire or if we, right. or if we take parts of it that are not edible or that are poisonous that's already processing food, right? Right, I think that's a great point and an important point. Yeah, we've been processing our food pretty much for as long as we've been eating. And there is an argument to be made that food processing is actually what made us human, right? So the anthropologist uh, Richard Wrangham has argued that it's the ability to cook food mm -hmm. that allowed us to extract more calories from it that in turn drove uh, the growth the of the evolution brain, of the brain, right? yeah. Yeah, and enabled the evolution of language and culture and all the things that made us human. So arguably cooking and, and really processed food made us human, right? But now food processing, of course, goes beyond that. And um, there's a new way of thinking about food, the NOVA food classification scheme that distinguishes levels of processing with the highest and most of what we find in the contemporary supermarket being ultra processed food, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just uh, commented on that because perhaps people would have the idea that any processed food would be bad for you, but it's actually not because all food is processed. It's just the industrially processed food that many times is not really that great for your health. Right. And to be clear, I haven't been making health claims so much as I have mm -hmm. been making claims about yeah. uh, the epistemological oh, yeah, impacts sure, sure. of ultra processed foods, right, which I think can uh, place a kind of or can obscure from us the nature of what we're eating in ways that are maybe you want to say epistemologically unhealthy, but epistemologically confusing, maybe, um, and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And talking about uh, ultra-processed food and stuff like that, of course, uh, there's also questions about we as consumers, if we should trust advertising labels and things like that. So what are your thoughts on it? Should we, from an epistemological perspective, how should we deal with food advertisement labels and so on? Right. I would say we cannot trust food advertisements. <laughs> yeah, that, that um, one at least, <laughs> that one at least is very clear, I guess. That's, pretty, that's an easy one uh, for me, at least. No. Yeah. Um, but I think the question of food labeling and what we want out of food labeling is a really tricky one. It's a really interesting one. Um, and I think that the question of trust is also a really important one, because as we, as our food system becomes more and more complex, right? you know, it would be nice to say, and I think that this is the route some people have taken, well, you can't trust ultra processed food or industrially processed food. So you should just eat local food produced by farmers you trust, and then you can really know what you're eating. And that sounds great. And that would be really nice, right? Um, but it's not a route that's realistic for everyone or maybe even anyone at this point, right? Not everyone has access to a farmer's market. But also, it takes a lot of time to bring home produce and wash it and prepare it and things like that. So I think for most of us, we are forced um, to a greater or lesser extent to rely on others to produce our food for us, whether that means to go to a restaurant and have it cooked for us or to buy, pro you know, industrially produced food at the supermarket. 
Um, even when we buy produce, right, we are trusting to some extent that it comes from where we've been told it comes from. Um, and a lot of the most recent incidents of food recalls and foodborne illnesses have come from produce, right? Uh, for a long time, the panic was around meat and burgers and things like that. But more and more lately, we see these recalls involving produce. Um, so to go back to your question, can we trust food labels? Can we trust food advertising? Well, you know, I think the short answer is no. The long answer is it's complicated. And one thought might be, well, we need more transparency in food labeling, right? But even there with questions about whether, say, genetically modified foods should be labeled as such, the question gets tricky because simply putting a piece of information on a label is not itself a neutral act, right? And so when we label a food as containing GMOs or not containing GMOs, right, some people have argued, well, then we give the consumer a certain impression that GMOs are bad or GMOs are good, mm -hmm. right? Because why would we tell you that GMOs aren't in the food if there weren't something wrong with GMOs, right? And, 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 perhaps, so, and perhaps even more so when you add the label organic to other foods, right? Because then it's GMO versus organic as if one of them was perfectly healthy and the other not so much. Right. And so we can distinguish different kinds of labeling claims, too. So there are claims like GMO, which I think most people have at least some basic concept of what that means. Organic people have some basic concept that it uh, involves the farming methods and which pesticides can and can't be used. So those are are claims that have some informational content um and that are regulated then there are claims that have make health related claims which are also regulated but i think in ways that are maybe less transparent to consumers um and have you know the potential to be misleading in certain ways that i'll come back to in a second and then there are you know really empty kind of bullshit claims like natural or real ingredients or things like this which i think give consumers some kind of feeling and that's why I say they're bullshit kind of in Frankfurt sense where it's like yeah I mean to of course they're real ingredients right like what would they be fake ingredients but when you see like real or artisanal right it's it gives you a kind of a vibe right so this is really just marketing claims that have no real content and um you know the label natural at least in the U.S the FDA here has been trying to come up with some kind of definition, but for a long time, they just haven't been regulating it at all because it's so hard to pin down like what it means to say that something is natural in that sense. So, um, so I think that those kinds of labels, you know, the question of whether they're trustworthy or not, well, they're kind of making consumers feel like they're getting some kind of information when in fact they're not really getting anything of the sort um, and they're kind of just uh, creating an impression for the consumer, uh, you know, in the same way that putting a picture of a, you know, a grassy farm and a cow standing out on a hill on a milk package gives the consumer an impression even when um, it's not really telling you anything about the actual circumstances of the cow that produced this milk. So I think that in that sense, labels can be misleading. Um, you know, another function that labels have, going back to the issue of health claims, is that labels can, can reflect certain kinds of conceptual schemes to us. And, you know, we see this a lot in health-based marketing and health-based marketing claims where labels tell us something about the macronutrients in a food, right? And in that sense, 
uh, shape the way we think about what's in our food and how we should make food choices. And I think this is especially pernicious when we look at um, foods marketed towards children or parents, right? So I have two young children. And if you walk down the cereal aisle, what you find is cereals like Cocoa Krispies or, you know, really, really sugary cereals. And they'll be marketed as, you know, a good source of vitamin D3 or zinc. So um, in one of my talks on this, I have a slide where there's a picture of, you know, just a chocolate cereal box and it's like, helps boost immunity, right? Well, there are lots of foods that help boost immunity. Um, those kinds of claims on these ultra processed foods, what we're thinking about is the way in which these foods can be kind of slotted into our diet to perform certain functions, right? That these foods are almost functional in a sense. So it distracts us from thinking about, well, I mean, is like chocolate really what we want to be eating for breakfast? Maybe it is, that's fine, but that's one way to frame the question. A different one is like, will this cereal boost my immune system, right? And those are very different ways of approaching the question of food, right? One is in terms of its, you know, its chemical constituents and thinking about those as fungible, as things that we can swap out for one another, right? So, well, I could eat this, you know, yogurt or egg that has all these vitamins in it, but the same vitamins are in this cereal. So I'll just treat them as interchangeable, right? And so I think that's another way to go back to your original question that labels can be misleading or not trustworthy, not because the information they present is necessarily false, right? Because it's true that that cereal has that vitamin in it, but because they encourage us to view food and to view like the food world in a specific way or through a specific lens, namely this kind of nutritionist lens, right? Viewing food as consisting of ingredients that are kind of interchangeable or something like that, rather than bringing our focus to the whole food itself, right? So if the box said sugary chocolate cereal, right? Super high in sugar, you know, um, nobody would buy that, right? And it would also kind of lead us out of that aisle maybe. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think uh, that's the long answer. The short answer was no, that's the long answer. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, particularly about the organic label, of course, it's not the case that they always do this, but many times people who use that kind of label and advertise food in that way, um, they usually say that it's chemical free. <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that's just uh, meaningless. I mean, even if they just mean, and usually that's what they mean, that they do not use pesticides, herbicides and stuff like that, that's usually not true. I mean, they might not use what's classified as artificial pesticides, but they very much use natural pesticides. And also, if you want to be a little bit more pedantic, I guess, and uh, go down to, I mean, perhaps, uh, perhaps say that uh, they, what they mean is that food uh, does not does not have any chemicals at all. I mean, <laughs> that's even more BS because everything it's is. All it, yeah, it's, it's, is it's all chemical. Yeah, so it's all chemicals. It's all chemicals. And even if I call that a, a bit pedantic, uh, I mean, it's still worth It's still worth talking about that because then you get online influencers who, for example, claim that if they read something on the label, 
that they can't pronounce or they don't know yeah. what it is, then it's an Elfie and that's just wrong. That's not right. Right. I think this is a really interesting issue and I think it's a tricky issue. And I think you've, you know, identified exactly the right questions here, right? So on the one hand, we're, if we use organic as a proxy for like no chemicals, right, then we're using it wrong because, yeah. you know, on the one hand, I think people don't have a firm grip on what organic means and what the organic regulations are. And that's because yeah. they're complicated, right? Like it's really, you know, with a lot of these, it's really hard to figure out. So when I was writing the book, I would be like, well, let me just look up what this food labeling term means. And it is not easily accessible, a lot of this information, right? So that's part of the problem. What we end up doing is using a lot of these terms as heuristics, right? So when we see organic, we use it as a heuristic for like, maybe produced using fewer chemicals, but I think we also use it as a heuristic for like morally good, right? Or environmentally friendly or healthier, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that that can be co-opted, right? By producers of ultra processed foods, um, by industrial food companies to make us feel good about their food. So in my grocery store now, you can buy organic all natural Cheetos, right? It is still Cheetos, the bright orange cheese puff. It's not bright orange. They've taken that, they toned down the color, right? It's an organic Cheeto. Does that mean it wasn't made by the same company that makes the regular Cheetos? No, it doesn't really mean that much, right? Um, it, you know, one thing we can say is that it was produced using non-genetically modified corn. So if that's important to you, great. But if you're someone who hasn't stopped to think about like, is that important to me, right? You might just see organic and think better. What does better mean there, right? Does it mean better for the environment? Does it mean better for your health? Does it mean both, right? It could, but not necessarily. Now, I think the question of this, how we think about kind of wellness and how we think about chemicals in food is really tricky because I think that um, on the one hand, there's a lot of sort of hysteria about, you know, ingredients you can't pronounce. But look, if you write out the names of vitamins in their full you know, scientific names, then yeah. a lot of them will be unpronounceable to you and will be unrecognizable. So again, that might be a heuristic, but it's not necessarily a good heuristic, right? At the same time, I think that it has, it's easy to ridicule some of this concern. And I think that, you know, sort of Instagram wellness influencers have made it easy to ridicule some of this concern. But in fact, I think a lot of the discourse around wellness is getting at something real, which is like a very real concern with our inability to understand our food system, right? So it may be that, you know, that concern is mis misstated when we put it in terms of like, I can't pronounce this ingredient, but there may be an actual concern of like, well, I don't really know what's in this, or I don't really know how this is made. And if what's being expressed is a mistrust of the industrial food system, then I think that mistrust is, uh, is earned. <laughs> I think there's been, you know, issues around, especially when it comes to like food for children, right? Um, but people have been, you know, from, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been sickened and have uh, been killed by uh, contaminated food, people have um, been misinformed about what's in their food. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's been scandals that, you know, crop up repeatedly there when I was living in the UK in around like 2012, there was a scandal involving packaged prepared foods that contain horse meat instead of ground beef, right? So it's like frozen lasagnas, things like that. 
there was incidents where McDonald's was making their fries with beef tallow, right, which was yeah. unacceptable to vegetarians and to certain religions. So we know that, yeah, there have been cases where the food system has betrayed our trust. And I think this desire to kind of have a transparent food system, which we can understand, may be unrealistic, but is also a way of expressing this concern that like, well, a lot of what we eat and what we put into our bodies is made in ways that we don't understand and is out of our hands. Now, there's also an interesting analogy here with medicine, right? Because, you know, one thing, one point that's come up sometimes when I talk to people about this is like, yeah, but I take a lot of medicine and I don't know what's in that and I don't know how it works, right? Yeah. But I don't feel like I need to know. And I think one thing that's reflected there is a differential degree of trust that we have in the medical system versus the food system. Now, oh, I also sure, think sure. one thing we're seeing is a lot of people don't trust the medical system either, right? And that trust has broken down in various ways. And so we can see how when that trust breaks down, things can go really wrong. Um, and I certainly don't mean to defend any kind of, um, you know, anti-vax or any kind of skepticism about the medical system. But I think, you know, part of what we're seeing here in the food case, when it comes to these, you know, kind of, oh, I don't want any chemicals in my food is that people really don't understand uh, the food system. And that I think that that is not accidental. I think that the mistrust that people have of the food system is, uh, is to some extent a reflection of, yeah, our mistrust in the food industry. Mm -hmm. No, I really have mm -hmm. to tell you that. Oh. Sorry, can I just say one more thing? I, just, yeah, I was yes. just wanted to add that, um, you know, part of that also is that I think that's something that we could fix relative, you know, we, people used to have food education as part of our, uh, as part of just the education system, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one, one way we might approach this is by bringing food literacy back into the classroom. Unfortunately, food has been so politicized that at least in America, that might be an unrealistic goal, but... Mm -hmm. Um, certainly in other countries, we see education about food and education about taste, right, mm -hmm. as just built into the school system. And that's something we really don't have here in America. And I think that's, uh, that's problematic. And it would be a relatively straightforward, if not easy, be a relatively straightforward fix for um, some of these issues and concerns. Yeah. No, no, I, I just wanted to say that the labels like or the idea, not so much the label perhaps, but the idea that some foods are natural or made of natural ingredients and, and then they get attached to environment-friendly ideas or sometimes veganism, for example, and its ethics. And uh, I mean, I talk about this because I was in fact a vegan for four years between 2014 and 2018. And I had tons of discussions with fellow vegans back then because, uh, oh, you just attach a label that, like natural to something and suddenly it's natural. And I mean, just the example of, let's say, vegan burgers. I mean, that's not natural at all. It's ultra processed. Right. It's not because it tastes good and it's made of usually healthy stuff. I mean, it's vegetables and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's for the most part healthy, I guess, but it's still ultra-processed. I mean, where in nature would you find a vegan burger or almond milk? And and this is the, the really kind of misleading stuff that bothers me. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, the milk debate is really interesting because I don't know about in Europe, at least here in America, this is being litigated now and the question of burgers and can you call it a burger if it's not beef? Can you call it milk if it's not dairy? Right. So <laughs> so this is a question. You know, I think that um, most people realize that almonds don't have mammary glands and that, you know, you can't get beef from a plant. So I think that to some extent, those terms we use in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, or we use them to refer to a particular kind of almost functional role that that food plays in our dietary practices. Um, but I think you're right that because of the way that food values get very wrapped up in one another, we often use a term like vegan or plant-based. Plant-based sounds so healthy, right? It's based on plants. How could it be bad, right? But of course, like palm oil or coconut oil are plant-based and, you know, to some extent, like, <laughs> it's all plant-based, right? Um, so I think that we can use those terms in a kind of heuristic sense to stand in for other values, like healthy or good for the environment or something like this. And I think that's where things get dangerous. But again, I think they also reflect, you know, a kind of, I think one way of looking at it is like, oh, people are so ignorant. They just don't get it. But another way of looking at it is like, people are really trying. Like, people really care about this stuff. And when people use plant-based in this way and aspire to it, what are we, what do we see about people's values? And I think that the optimistic read is like, people do care about making better food choices. And if we can kind of help them get there, then the desire is really there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And look, I'm not blaming uh, people uh, at all. I mean, I'm mostly blaming the ones who make this sort of uh, yeah. advert advertising and this sort yeah. of misleading labels because I mean everyone that I met while I was a vegan I, I think was very much well-intentioned when they wanted to buy environment-friendly stuff natural stuff and, and uh, I mean things that uh, were plant-based and did not have any sort of animal cruelty attached to them. So I think that people are very well intentioned, but the ones who advertise food products like that, I mean, I, those are the ones I really don't like. So. Yeah, I mean, I will just say, uh, you might be, there's a writer, she's not a philosopher, but a writer named Alicia Kennedy, who is a, writes about veganism. She herself is, I think, a vegan. Um, and she has a new book coming out on meat. Um, and she's written some really persuasive critiques, I think, of the way in which these sort of tech-focused approaches to, um, you know, animal ethics and climate issues in the food system kind of miss the point, right? Because they just kind of put all the energy and all the effort and all the emphasis back into the industrialized food system, which while it might mitigate some of the climate impact, and I say might there, right? While it might mitigate some of the animal suffering, it doesn't get at some of the bigger, more systemic issues in the food system. And so in that way, it really just concentrates the power in the same hands in which it's always been. Mm -hmm. So let's talk now a little bit about aesthetics then. So th there's a broad question that is, what is art? And then a more narrow question in this case, that is, can food be art? So what do you have to say about that? Right. Well, okay. I hope this won't sound too disappointing, but I think both of those are, I think we're realizing more and more that both of those are not really the interesting question or the important question. Okay. Um, and, you know, I, I say that recognizing that I did spend 
a fair amount of time in the book talking about this. <laughs> but again, as with the objectivity question, I think the maybe one way to respond to those questions is to say like, well, why do we care? Why would it matter, right? And so when we ask like, can food be art? I think part of what we mean is like, how much value should we put on food in the aesthetic sense, right? Mm -hmm. Is food worthy of veneration? Is food worth flying around the world and spending hundreds and thousands of dollars to spend a few hours like worshiping at this, you know, temple of gastronomy or something? Can food give us the kind of transcendent experience that a work of art can give us, right? And you might have that experience looking at a sunset, you might have that experience looking at the Mona Lisa, whatever it is for you, right? Listening to a beautiful piece of music. Now, a lot of the arguments against food being art, I think, start from this paradigmatic idea of art as like a painting that you can stand and stare at for as long as you want, that can be appreciated through the centuries, right? Um, and the idea that food is uh, impermanent, that food is more subjective, something that we experience by taking it into our bodies. I think that has seemed to many people to be an impediment to food being uh, like real art in the same way that we might think of like the Mona Lisa being art or something mm -hmm. like that. But of course, when we broaden our conception beyond just the painting paradigm, right, we realize that many works of what we would consider to be great art, and here I have in mind music, theater, right, things like that, uh, maybe an architecture, because of course the surroundings for a piece of architecture change, the light in which you see that architecture changes, the materials themselves change through the centuries, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things change. And so there's a sense in which we're never really appreciating the same work as someone else, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think, you know, one way to answer the question would be to say, there's no reason why not, right? There's no reason why food can't be art. Now the question of like, well, what does it get us if we say that it can be art, you know, I think, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I mean, we know that certain kinds of products, you you know, um, certain kinds of foods are designated as kind of cultural, having a kind of cultural value, right? So um, through Slow Food um, and its affiliates and through the United Nations, we can designate certain types of food as like a unique part of our cultural heritage and in that sense, imbue them with value. But at the same time, you know, there are foods that, we might not think have any kind of elevated status, but that are meaningful to us and that we can sort of see and aesthetically appreciate in certain ways. So, you know, I grew up in New York City and um, I took my kids to New York City last year and we stopped and got hot pretzels from one of the like hot pretzel carts on the street. Now, there's, I mean, it, there's nothing particularly artistically elevated about the hot pretzel, but if you get it at the right time and you eat it in the right way and it's just salty enough, but not too salty and it's still hot, but it hasn't been reheated. Like it can be a really great experience and there's something about eating it in that place at that time, right? That gives you a kind of specialness and that to me is very much associated with, you know, being in New York City. Um, do they have them in other places? Sure, right? Is it the same? Not exactly. And so I think in that sense, uh, you know, we can have a kind of aesthetically significant and aesthetically maybe even transcendent experience of foods that we would not necessarily want to make the case for it being a work of art. But of course, we say stuff like, oh, this is a work of art, you know, um, we can say that, you know, about various things, right, without necessarily meaning to commit ourselves to like this belongs in a museum, and maybe even putting it in a museum would, would kind of ruin the moment or ruin the thing. So, yeah. So that's a kind of long, maybe unsatisfying answer, but I think 
the question like is food worthy of our aesthetic attention and elevation and appreciation definitely right mm -hmm. yeah there's also the point to be made that sometimes food itself is depicted in art like paintings oh yeah, yeah. definitely i was just um i've been talking to the art museum on campus here about maybe bringing my students over and they sent me a list of every work in their museum that involves food and it's just like hundreds and hundreds of mm. items right so yes food can be depicted in art art can be made of food so there are artists who have used food as their medium there's an artist uh, who i discuss in the book who makes sculptures out of couscous and then part of that is that the sculptures invariably kind of uh collapse and decay right in the same way that you know, artists working in natural mediums like land art have built the idea of impermanence and the idea of decay into the art itself, right? So that the work is supposed to sink back into the land, is supposed to slowly erode or whatever the case may be. Um, there are also artists who have used the act of cooking and serving food as part of their performance, right? Um, so whose performance has involved bringing uh, you know, bringing people in and cooking and serving food for them. So food can be art in various ways. And certainly the act of dining itself can, can is a performance in many cases. And in many uh, high-end restaurants, you know, is treated as a kind of performance, whether more or less successfully, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's also at least to some extent to be expected because it's not that in all types of art and in all art movements you see that, but many times what people depict in art has to do with just the daily activities we do, right? And eating is is a big one. So. Right, and you know, from the first, I mean, you know, from early on also, so there's there's the kind of everyday eating and you know paintings of people engaged in um in everyday eating or everyday foods and then you know we have our everyday meals but we also have meals as a kind of performance and so some of the feasts we read about you know historically um have involved a kind of you know um the creation of these dishes that were either made to look like you know fancy buildings so the the pastry artist, uh, the pastry chef Karem, who's like a say 17th, 16th century um, chef wrote that, you know, pastry is really a branch of architecture and famously would make these elaborate, you know, sort of dishes that look like buildings or whatever the case may be. So there's a sense in which you can also just like make the food a work of art, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, you know, art can be good art and there's also bad art. So sometimes these attempts, especially, you know, have gone viral online as kind of misguided attempts to make dining into a kind of theater. And I think there was a <laughs> review that went like a kind of like Instagram or TikTok review of a 30 course dinner at a restaurant in Italy or something where it was like just seemed like really bad, <laughs> bad art um, that went viral, I think, a couple of years ago where it was like one of the the serving plates was like a reproduction of a mouth and you were supposed to like suck the foam out of the mouth or something. So this can also, you know, it's not to imply that all attempts to make food into an aesthetic experience are successful. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that, but there's definitely online streamers who are paid to eat food uh, while streaming. So. Right. Yes, that's true. And then there's a whole genre of like disgusting sort of viral food videos. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that brings out a different point, which is that 
we tend to think of the aesthetic, when we think about the aesthetics of food, we tend to focus on positive aesthetic experiences, right? Like pleasure and it tastes good. And we talk about yeah. comfort food and all of these things. But of course, food can be uncomfortable and unpleasant and it can be too spicy or it can be kind of disgusting. And there is a kind of perverse appeal to that too, right? And I think mm -hmm. that we tend to uh, focus on just one small subset of the aesthetic experiences food can afford us. Right. So let's talk a little bit about recipes. This is also an interesting topic, topic, curiously enough, because before reading your book, I didn't think it would be this interesting. But uh, anyway, uh, of course, people create different kinds of recipes. And of course, some of them, perhaps it's easier to trace back to the people who originally develop them, others not so much, but do you think that there should be property rights uh, for creators of recipes? Would that make sense? Um, I mean, I don't know what... I think that it's a tricky question, and I think it's something that chefs have been worried about for hundreds of years. So it's tempting, you know, I do think that this question has gotten more pressing as uh, you know, getting followers and likes on social media and things like that have gotten to be more of an issue. And, you know, I mean, I think this is maybe philosophers can relate to this too. You put an idea online and it's out there, right? And yeah, yeah. maybe you can say, I put it online first, but now it's out there and it's in, you know, in the air for other people to build on and develop and things like that. And that can feel a little scary and it can feel like we have this tension between wanting to keep ownership of our ideas and wanting to share them and put them out there. To get credit for it, you have to put it out there, right? And yeah. so there have been cases where, you know, a cookbook author or something was, um, you know, was accused of and where people were able to trace it back to like, well, I this recipe appeared on this person's site and then it appeared in your cookbook two years later and you didn't credit them, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're making money off an idea and it can be shown that you did not come up with it, um, then, that does seem problematic, right? That seems like um, the theft of intellectual property. And some of the cases I have in mind here are like, you know, cases where someone, there was one case I think where it was like someone made cupcakes that looked like kernels of corn or something like that, where it was like a very specific design and look or something, right? On the other hand, we have this issue, which is like, you know, going back to the idea that food is chemistry, there's only so many ways to get flour and butter and eggs to combine and make a cupcake, right? And I've left out a few ingredients there. Um, but the, the constraints on like what, how many cupcake recipes you can come up with, like they're there, right? And so you kind of see this a little bit like every year around certain holidays where it's like every newspaper and magazine has to come up with like new Thanksgiving articles, new ways to do Thanksgiving, right? At least here in America, where it's like, there's only so many ways you can do it. So I think in another sense, this there's more pressure now to churn out new food content because there's so many sites and cooking shows and magazines and content creators and blogs, right? So, you know, having said that, I don't think that it really, you know, that people lose from crediting the creators of recipes. I mentioned that this issue goes back, you know, hundreds of years. Um, Escoffier, one of the great French chefs, arguably the inventor of uh, the idea of French chefery, um, worried about this and wrote that this is like a problem for chefs and we need a kind of intellectual, you know, property law, basically, mm -hmm. uh, to protect recipes. Um, and it used to be that recipes were kind of codified, at least for like the, you know, the grand cuisines, 
um, codified into books and things like that. Um, what was I going to say? So more recently, at, in cases involving like molecular gastronomy, you may be able to copyright certain kinds of technological innovations in the kitchen. Um, so I'm trying to think of the name of the chef in Chicago who was a molecular gastronomy chef uh, who patented a number of his inventions. He would, in his restaurants, would have like edible paper and things like that that he was able to patent because they involved new kinds of technology. But as it turns out, you know, as I said, there's only so many ways to make a cupcake. And so it can be hard to, to actually claim legal protection for some of that. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain conventions which I talk about in the book, and I can't think of off the top of my head, um, where if you change a certain number of steps or ingredients, you can claim that it's a new recipe. But I think more and more we're seeing people willing and, uh, you know, and being more transparent about this is a recipe from so and so and I adapted it. Here's where I found it and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I guess, and I don't know if you agree with this, but perhaps there's also, on the other hand, a very big discussion to be had about what should be the limits, perhaps, perhaps let's put it that way in terms of limits, of intellectual property and patents, for example, because, I mean, sometimes it might be a little bit stifling when it comes to, uh, I, I don't know, cultural progress and developments that really have societal value and not just and are not just valuable to one person or a few people who can monetize it or extract money from it or capitalize it in some sort of way i i mean do you understand what i'm trying to get at because sometimes intellectual property might be stifling in several different kinds of ways and i mean not just uh, i'm not necessarily talking about food here because i'm not sure about recipes but for example people uh, are very much like the fact that uh, some vaccines that were developed in the past were not patented and are, uh, right. You know. Yeah. So I think you're right. This is getting us. This is not just a recipe question. This is really a question about food technology and food innovation and things like that. And in that sense, yes, it extends beyond recipes to questions about genetically modified organisms, right, and patents mm -hmm. on seeds. And yeah. certainly now, as we're seeing new ways of producing meat, right, um, cultivated meat or lab-grown meat, um, mm -hmm. depending on uh, your preference for term. Right, a lot of that technology is going to be one question is like, well, how proprietary is this technology going to be? And if we mm -hmm. keep, you know, these production methods, certainly there's a lot of money going into developing these methods and scaling them and developing the technology. But if we come to rely on these methods and they are proprietary, then we've concentrated, um, you know, a lot of value and power in the hands of just a few producers, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's an issue there as well. Um, and so you're right that food technology. I think, uh, and intellectual property intersect in really tricky ways, you know, arguably, people might say, well, look, there's no incentive to produce these innovations or to develop these technologies if there's not money to be made there, right. But on the other hand, um, if we allow them to be patented, and we allow them to be uh, proprietary technology, then we are giving up, you know, the ability to offer them uh, where we're concentrating 
the power behind them in the hands of just a few companies potentially, and that might seem problematic. Mm -hmm. And about something that might be at least tangentially related to property when it comes to food, what about cultural appropriation? Because of course, today, even here in Portugal, I live next to a small city and you have Indian restaurants, Japanese restaurants, Brazilian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, and I'm a Portuguese guy. I mean, should I be allowed to, <laughs> to experience right. all this variety of foods from different places? And should uh, the, the owners of the restaurants, if they are not Japanese or Chinese, be allowed to I don't know, use those kinds of foods or recipe or recipes or sell them to their customers. Right. So these are, I mean, I think that uh, interesting, you know, it's an interesting issue. I think that there's a, there's one way of understanding, which is like, wait, are you saying that I can't cook this food? No, nobody, definitely no one is saying that you're fine. Go to the restaurants. Um, I think that where, And, you know, of course, because food is always a product of cultural exchange and, you know, um, diffusion and many of the recipes that people would identify with a certain cuisine don't become, uh, we don't find it in that cuisine until much later. So, you know, tomatoes as a kind of new world crop and potatoes, and then they make their way back to Europe and diffuse into Europe and so on and so forth. Chili peppers, another kind of new world crop that then make their way, you know, back to Asia or something like that. So we see a lot of diffusion when it comes to both ingredients and recipes and techniques. And I think that when people talk about cultural appropriation, one way of misunderstanding the issue is to think like, oh, well, you can only cook the recipes or with the ingredients of where you're from. But I think the bigger issue is about power and economic power and also like credit and status, right? Because one thing we see in a lot of, uh, nation like you know european nations or america is that we have this concept of kind of quote-unquote ethnic cuisines and there's great work by uh krishnan duray at, at nyu and he has a book called the ethnic restaurateur and he talks about the way in which in america at least our concept of like quote-unquote ethnic foods is orthogonal and authenticity is kind of like orthogonal to our concept of like fine dining and expensive food and you know things like that and so we when we look for like really authentic indian food or chinese food we look for restaurants that are not what we would consider fancy um and he did some really interesting work going through like um restaurant guides you can't really do this as easily because you don't have the paper books but seeing like how many of the top rated restaurants in each cuisine category were also like the most expensive and it turns out like when you look at french and italian food restaurants in new york city in like the 90s the best French and Italian restaurants are the most expensive. When you look at places like Indian or Chinese or things like that, which look, even in themselves are like these really broad categories, right? Like Chinese food obscures all these different regional differences. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, you know, you get the same, and you get the same effect in Indian food and things like that, right? So even those categories- I mean, I can, I, really can very, I can very much attest to that when it comes to Portuguese food, so. Right. But I mean, imagine someone was like, well, I'm going to go to a European restaurant for dinner. Do you want to come? Like, hey, do you want to get some European food tonight? I mean, we would just be like, well, wait, you know, even you're saying even the category of Portuguese is like so broad. And it's true, even Italian, right? I mean, um, I used to work at Italian restaurants through 
high school and college and graduate school and I worked in one where they didn't serve any pasta, right? It was like the food of like Northern Italy and they were like, we're gonna make an, an effort to not serve pasta here. We wanna highlight other foods of Northern Italy. Well, people did not care for that. <laughs> I must have said, <laughs> we don't have pasta like a thousand times a day. Um, so look, even, you know, but we would never say like, oh, we're gonna get some European takeout or something like that, right? Um, and so I think that's another issue is that the way that uh, we think about cuisines and that we identify foods with culture can obscure a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, and there's a lot of identity wrapped up in that too, right? As food becomes identity. And, um, you know, so part of it is the, so I think part of it has to do with the economic value we assign to certain cuisines and who gets credit both for expertise and who's making money off these foods, I think is a big issue there too, right? Um, so when we look at the chefs that are you know, on TV and are making money and we look at the restaurants that are um, creating economic value, right? Uh, one question is who benefits, right? And so I think the, the concern is really not with people like you or me, maybe like going home and cooking something, right? Although one concern might be like the extent to which we think we understand a cuisine, right? And there, that I think is an issue where it's like, look, sure, you can cook it, you can eat it, but if you're gonna self-style yourself as an expert, right? Have you actually done the homework? Have you done the research? And there certainly are Western chefs who have spent a lot of time in other countries, right? Learning the cuisine, learning the language, learning the techniques, and bringing those back. Now, the issue is, you know, who's profiting from that knowledge, right? And I think that that is also a question. And also, I guess that uh, since you mentioned us as common people preparing uh, foreign foods, let's say, uh, I guess that perhaps there's another question that is worth uh, considering here, particularly when you look at uh, anthropology and ethnographic studies, for example, because not always, but many times foods are also associated with particular kinds of practices and rituals in the preparation and in the serving of the food and all of that. Uh, and I mean, you might think that's not important at all because you don't live in, I don't know, India or Japan or whatever, but for the people who created uh, those foods, I mean, those practices and rituals and norms uh, surrounding particular dishes and so on are very important, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that gets to the question of knowledge and how our preparation of food and our preparation of recipes uh, embodies and transmits knowledge both of the food itself and of the culture associated with it, right? So it's easy, you know, so I think we have to be, part of the worry about cultural appropriation is that, is really worry about how we're understanding and defining and um, perpetuating ideas about a culture. So, you know, we might think that, if we think that a dish is representative of or reflective of a culture as a whole, and we lack the context for that dish, then we might be uh, disseminating a kind of misunderstanding. So there's a, a piece I sometimes teach in my food class by a farmer named Chris Newman, and he's talking about uh, the idea that people sometimes, sometimes when you see recipes for like Native American cuisine in America, people will put up recipes for like Navajo fry bread, right? Which is a kind of like fried dough kind of thing. And Newman makes this point like, 
look, Navajo fry bread is a recipe that comes up when uh, indigenous groups are made dependent on US government staples like flour and oil, right? And so all of a sudden they don't have access because they've been taken off their land. They've been taken away from um, the food that they would produce and made reliant on commodity staples. And that's how this recipe comes up. But if you see, you know, if an outsider comes in and is like, oh, well, here's a recipe that seems associated with, you know, Navajo cuisine and starts reproducing that without the right cultural context, you end up with not just a misguided, but a pretty offensive notion of, you know, that erases a lot of history there. Um, so I think cultural context is important in understanding the, the recipe itself. It can also be important in aesthetically appreciating the recipe. And here's, I think, where we also see like, you know, aesthetics and epistemology and metaphysics all kind of come together in these cases. So certain recipes, when you appreciate their origins, you can kind of get a different view about the recipe itself. Um, so one example that I talk about in a philosophy compass article I wrote is like the Cornish pasty. So I went to Cornwall, my husband is, uh, grew up in England and I had a Cornish pasty, which is like kind of like a pie, right? That you hold in your hand, it's got filling. I was like, this is good, but like the crust is very thick. Like there's this very ropey, thick crust along the side. Didn't care for it. Thought it was like too thick and ropey. I would prefer more filling, less crust. But then when you understand like, well, this is originated as something that people would put in their bag and then go out to work all day, right? And it, the crust had to be thick to kind of hold up, right? Otherwise, if you make a very thin crust, you're gonna have a soggy mess by lunchtime, right? And that can kind of give you a better or a different aesthetic evaluation of the interplay between crust and filling and things like that. So I think sometimes also the context is just important to better appreciate the recipe itself um, or better appreciate the food itself. Yeah, I think that at the very least, even if we do not uh, decide to not consume certain types of food uh, outside of their a culturally relevant context, let's say, and without going through the proper rituals and practices and all of that in its preparation, at least we should uh, we should consider the importance that people attach to their own foods and how there's a culturally relevant context to each food, right? Yeah, sure. And I think that, you know, People, when we think about the erasure of groups, right, and of cultures and of groups of people, a lot of it proceeds through the erasure of their food, right, and both literally and symbolically, right? So when we wanted to, um, you know, as in America, when part of our sort of displacement of and genocide of indigenous groups involved mm -hmm destroying their food systems, right? Mm -hmm. We wiped out the buffalo, we took them away from their land, we, you know, um, yeah, we attacked their food system. And I think we've seen that time and time again in history, right? You just kind of take over a food system um, and that's how you uh, wipe out a people. And I think, you know, a different aspect of that is that for part of being seen is having your food recognized, right? And so appreciating someone's food, whether it's just going into their house and, you know, appreciating what they're serving you, even if you don't like it, whether it's, you know, recognizing someone's cuisine as valuable and as um, something worthy of appreciation. A lot of our kind of like denigrating terms for other groups involve what they eat, right? And so I think that we do care a lot about food and it becomes part of our identity. And so, you know, to, to appreciate someone's identity is to appreciate their food and to appreciate it on their terms, right? 
Um, and, you know, again, like a lot of expertise goes into preparing and cultivating food and goes into recipes. And I think that sometimes that expertise is not val as valued as it should be, because at least um, in a lot of Western cultures, it's seen as sort of women's domestic labor. And it's not until it becomes like a kind of professionalized chefery that we assign it an economic value. So I think we don't often look at recipes and see it as like a really important piece of technological engineering. But that is what recipes are, right? Mm -hmm. They're incredibly sophisticated forms of technological engineering for, you know, extracting nutrition from these raw ingredients in a way that won't kill you, which is actually really hard to do and has taken like 1000s of years of expertise to perfect. And so to appreciate that kind of work and that kind of labor, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. No, I, I mean, there are uh, traditional societies about which I read certain ethnographies, and sometimes the, uh, the number of steps it takes to prepare a particular kind of food for it to be edible and not poisonous, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. I don't think that many people in industrialized societies would be able to do something like that and right. not die. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So uh, there's two more topics I would like to explore here today. The first one has to do with ethics and of course we've ended up talking a little bit about it, particularly yeah. when we were talking about advertising and labeling and all of that. But just to touch perhaps a little bit more on it. So um, when it comes to the environment, because nowadays, particularly in the most advanced societies, people care a lot about the relationship between food and the environment and the environmental impact of food and the food we consume. So what would you say are some of the most important questions to consider here? You know, I'm not sure I'm the, I'm not sure I have a great answer to this one. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, obviously, the environmental impacts of our food system are vast. And I think that more and more people are starting to appreciate the environmental costs of food production. As far as what are the most important aspects, I'm not sure. I do think it's interesting um, to see the way in which people have really responded to uh, to some of these arguments in recent years, and I think it's been moving a lot of people away from consuming animal products, um, meat, dairy, things like that. But yeah, so I, I'm sorry if I don't have a great answer to that one. Um, no, sure, no, no worries at all. And what about um, how food production is can be ethically related to health, for example? To health. Yeah. Um, can you can you just say more about what you mean by that? Like, uh, I mean, perhaps uh, earlier we, when we were talking about labeling and, and all of that, at a certain point, I think that either you or I made the point of trying to tie it to uh, elf, because of course we, for example, if food, depending on the ways food is produced, I guess that it might have different impacts positive or negative on our health oh. and th that th that was basically the kind of question i was asking so. oh sure yeah so i thought i mean another question i was thinking about was the way in which uh food production impacts the health of like communities that you mm -hmm. know 
in which factory farms are located, um, pesticide runoff, things like that. So I think that is another aspect of food production that people may not be as cognizant of unless you happen to live near, you Mm. know, a large scale animal production or processing facility, or unless you tend to live near a farm with a lot of pesticide runoff or that uses a lot of pesticides, which end up in the air, things like that. And I think part of it is that for a lot of people and a lot of, you know, affluent in a lot of affluent nations and communities, food production is really something that we're pretty removed from and that we don't tend to, uh, to be near or to, uh, to see firsthand. And so I think that lets us kind of um, avoid thinking about the cost of food production, both in terms of labor and health and things like that. Um, But one thing we know is like, it's not great for a community. It's in fact bad for a community if you have, you know, large scale animal feeding or processing or slaughterhouse operations in that community. And Mm -hmm. so in that sense, I think um, it is bad for people's health. Um, I think that, you know, the question of ultra processed foods and how processed and industrialized food impacts our health is complicated. Um, you know, one thing we tend to focus on the negative health impacts and those are very real. We also know that, you know, enriched foods and the addition of vitamins into the food system has prevented a lot of illness and death, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, one of the, the driving motivations for genetically modified, certain forms of genetically modified rice, like golden rice, for example, was to add in vitamin A and prevent mm-hmm. childhood blindness. Even well into the 20th century in many industrialized nations, people are, you know, suffering and dying from vitamin deficiencies, vitamin D, um, things like that. So, you know, the, I think that it's easy to focus on the negative health effects. And as I said, those are very real, but we are also pretty dependent on um, industrialized food for a lot of the nutrients that we need. Mm-hmm. And so let me just ask you about one last topic then. So about the possible future of food. Of course, we've already, we are already seeing the development of certain kinds of technologies related to, for example, the so-called lab meat, yeah. uh, and also related to genetically modified organisms. We have uh, better and better, better and better genetic engineering, for example, so how do you look at the future of food and what are some of the technologies perhaps that you are more excited or interested about? So this is a question that interests me a lot and it's a great question to end on because it is it kind of encapsulates all of the issues we've talked about, right? Like the metaphysics of like, well, what would we consider food? The epistemology of like, how much do we know about what we're eating? And so I'm really interested in the development of quote unquote lab grown or cultivated or cultured meat. And it turns out there, even the question of what to call it is a controversial question. So (laughs) that's um, why I use the the scare quotes when mentioning lab meat. People would talk about in vitro meat, right? But then it turns out like that fell by the wayside very quickly. And then people started to use the term lab grown meat. It turns out that most of the actual companies involved in this do not like the term lab grown meat and consider it kind of not offensive, but like they would really rather go with like cultured or cultivated meat, right? Some people have proposed clean meat, again, going back to this idea of like, you know, the ideals we associate with our food, Um, but maybe to kind of get away from the image of like the lab and science, One thing that's really interesting to me is that initially there was a lot of media attention on this, 
now more and more we're seeing these products get approval and get government approval um, and even hit the market without much media fanfare. So that kind of, I think that's interesting because, you know, rather than kind of touting it as this exciting new innovation, it seems like the approach might be more to just kind of normalize it and put it into the food system. And I think the question of how we'll label these products is gonna be a really interesting one to see how that plays out. I think another interesting question involves where it's going to fit into our food system. So for example, if you think about like factory farm meat and where that fits in, you know, a lot of um, ultra processed animal products, fast food, things like that. If we replace those with cultivated meat, um, that might alleviate a lot of environmental impacts and animal suffering. On the other hand, if I could imagine a scenario where cultivated meat becomes this kind of high-end product available only to like consumers mm -hmm. who really value kind of um, ethical uh, animal consumption and then kind of pushes these maybe smaller, more local producers, artisanal meats and things like that out of the market. And that to me seems like it would be um, maybe less of a positive role for it to play. You know, I think that another question about the future of food is um, has to do with the extent to which we will rely on technology to solve some of the challenges in our food system. And, you know, when we think about shifting our conception, we started with the question of what is food? And I think whatever comes next is going to challenge our existing conceptions of what food is, because that's always evolving and it's always being challenged, right? One direction it might get challenged in is, you know, taking the things we already think of as food, burgers, milk, cheese, stuff like that, you know, stuffed crust pizza, and just simply replacing the components with new components. So we replace the, the burger and the Big Mac with cultivated meat. And that would be one way of challenging what we think of as food. Another way though might be to broaden the very categories themselves. And so there's been some discussion uh, in recent years of eating insects, entomophagy, right? Traditionally, insects have been eaten and still are eaten around the world in many cultures. They are in many ways a nutritionally ideal uh, food. They are very low impact from an environmental point of view. We don't think insects really suffer, at least certainly not in the same way that animals do. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a different way of challenging our conception of food would be to just start thinking about different things as food, right? Not to kind of remain uh, within the same concept of like what a dinner looks like, but to think really differently about what kinds of things we might find on our plate. Um, you know, likewise, people have talked about like seafood or fungi or things like that. One approach to these new foods, or sorry, seaweed, I said seafood, I meant seaweed. One approach would be like, yeah, just start eating seaweed. Another would be like, take seaweed and turn it into veggie burgers, right? I'm not saying that either of these are better or worse. I'm, I'm kind of just saying that these are two different ways of thinking about the future of food. And it might be that we take both approaches, right? But at the very least, I think that if we just focus on um, replacing the components in our existing foods with new sort of uh, more technologically advanced components, we're missing out on an opportunity to challenge what we think of as food and to, to challenge the industrial food system itself, right? And we're just kind of further and further entrenching that food system and, and handing over more and more, not just economic power, not just cultural influence, but also, you know, epistemic access to the foods we're eating, right? Um, I think, you know, transitions to new foods can be uncomfortable. Transitions to new ways of eating can be uncomfortable. They can challenge our ideas of like ourselves and our identities and the status quo. And when we think about, you know, past 
uh, efforts to do this, you know, some of the foods that we would think of as most familiar now, right, like sushi, um, things like that, were once really unfamiliar and bizarre and kind mm -hmm. of exotic, even kale, right, which is now everywhere. I mean, for a while, it was just like the leaf that was under your omelet and that you just kind of pushed aside at the end of the meal. And that's all most people thought of when they thought of kale, right? So we know that people can change. We know that our cuisines and our food cultures can change. And I think that it'll be really interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, and perhaps try, uh, we should try to not have this sort of essentialistic view of food. Uh, perhaps we could put it that way, where uh, we think of food as only the things we are used to eat. And if suddenly someone tries to tweak them a little bit, to change them a little bit, to present them in different ways. I mean, in the case of cultured meat, I guess that perhaps at least the theoretically speaking, it's something that they could do to, for example, reduce the saturated fat content of sure, regular yeah. meat. And that, and if it was as tasty as regular meat, I think that would potentially be a positive. Uh, I mean, I, I think that we should try as best as we can to stop thinking about food as something that should be only one way and if something newer, better uh, appears, we just ditch it or, moral, or negatively moralize it in particular ways, right? Right. I mean, I think that example you gave is really interesting of meat because, you know, one way of looking at that issue is like, well, we could re-engineer meat to be lower in saturated fat, right? We could also re-engineer our diets to contain less meat, right? Yeah. Um, and notice that the re-engineering example also, I think, again, sort of offloads the question of how to eat onto like the product and onto the nutritional information about the product, right? Rather than thinking about um, a shift in our diets. You know, meat is a really interesting example. Certainly in America, this, you know, you mentioned being less essentialist. And I think certainly in America, food is very politicized, right? And so this question of eating less meat becomes a question of cultural identity, right? I saw some posts where it was like, you know, someone, uh, I guess a kind of conservative influencer, right-wing influencer had posted a picture of their breakfast and it was like a steak and like four <laughs> fried eggs. And they're like, this is what they want to take away from us. Even eating insects has apparently become like the subject of some kind of um, conspiracy theory online where it's like, oh, don't let them make you eat the bugs, right? So there's a kind of like political aspect to all of this where fights over social and cultural and national identity become fights over what to eat, right? And this uh, is one also, reason why it's been so hard to impose school lunch standards in the US is like, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of like, well, they're coming for your children's lunches, right? Mm -hmm. And so it really makes it hard to make progress in a lot of these questions. And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that's something that's like, so to speak, organic or bottom up. I think mm -hmm. that's a way in which a kind of paranoia about food, about, you know, politics and things like that has been kind of sold to people through the lens of food and food choices and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, also, because uh, just to comment on it very quickly, I guess that um, moralizing people eating insect, insects or bugs, I mean, that can also sort of create a, an association between people with insects and lower standards of food or even 
straight out discrimination against those people that, that and eating insects is very common in for example south south east asia and china and other places like yeah that. south america things like that so yes you're right i mean i think also yeah you know earlier i mentioned that um attacking people's food can be a way of attacking people themselves and i think certainly mm. denigrating people's food as unclean or as disgusting is a form of racism, right? And is a form mm. that racism takes. So holding up, you know, your own cultural practices. And, you know, we haven't talked about manners, but table manners go into this as well. So, yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, yeah, I'm sure we're starting, if we haven't already seen, how complicated some of these food choices could be and how, yeah, they take us way outside just ethics. Um, yeah. I hope also, yeah, maybe you can start to be excited about your meals again. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and the book is, again, Thinking Through Food, a philosophical introduction. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And apart from the book, would you like to mention where people can find your work on the Internet? Sure. Um, I have a philosophy compass article on the aesthetics of food. Um, you can go to my website, alexplakius.com. I currently have a new book that is in production with OUP on awkwardness. Um, and um, I have some work on publishing and whether philosophers should believe the arguments that they publish. So um, a little bit of a dilettante, um, a little bit of something for everyone. But if you don't want your meals ruined, you can just look at some of my uh, my moral psychology and epistemology stuff online. And I should also mention I've done some stuff on disgust if that hasn't kind of been evident throughout the interview. So thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. No, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you. All right, great. Well, it was nice talking to you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, John Linares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Amel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Des Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlo Stasevsky, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortezus, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Georgius Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, 
Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dealey Jr., Holt Erickbud, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Tom Roth, the RPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, Zizar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stefiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.